Welcome to The Body Nerd Show. I'm your host, Alexandra Ellis, and after a decade in the fitness industry, I've finally cracked the code on how you can build sustainable strength without getting hurt. I'm a coach, writer, yogi, kettlebell devotee, lover of lifting heavy things, and 100% a body nerd. So stick with me, and I'll teach you how to make body maintenance and movement mastery a fundamental part of your wellness routine. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back. You're listening to episode 101 of The Body Nerd Show. On today's episode, you'll learn the best fixes for plantar fasciitis and foot pain, if flat feet are really as big of a deal as the shoe companies want you to think, and how resting alone can sometimes make your overall recovery time even longer. Today, I'm joined by Brody Sharp. He is a physiotherapist based in Australia and the host of the Run Smarter podcast. He also runs an online physio clinic dedicated to helping runners feel confident in running again called the Breakthrough Running Clinic. Now, when it comes to running, you know I'm not an expert and I'm not trying to be an expert, but Brody actually is an expert as a runner himself and a physiotherapist or physical therapist, depending on where you are in the world, like he truthfully is an expert in pain-free running. And my experience with running, I've done 5Ks and 10Ks and half marathons. And there was that 14K that one time because chocolate, it happens, I know. But running injuries are really, really, really common. And it's my goal to help you keep doing the things that bring you joy and that you love, whether it's strength training or running or playing with your kids or hiking or whatever it may be, you deserve to enjoy life without pain. And so Brody and I are definitely on the same page when it comes to that. And he brings to the table a lot of fascinating research behind all the things we're talking about. So I know that you're going to get a ton out of this episode. So let's, let's, let's just get right to it. First of all, welcome Brody to the show. What do you like to get nerdy about? Thanks for having me on, Alexandra. I do like to get nerdy about a couple of things. Well, we're going to discuss today, but a lot of it's going to be running. I do love busting running myths and diving into the research there. So I do like to get nerdy about that. But I'm also a bit of like a a physics and history buff where I do like a lot of documentaries and reading a lot of books on those sort of topics as well. So physics was my favorite subject in high school. And I've kind of just kept to those tendencies without really diving into any physics career or yeah, just entertaining me that way. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's admirable because I took it in summer school. This is so awful. I remember we put my dog down that summer and it's just like that and physics are like always what I relate oh, to. No. Tainted yeah. for life. Yeah. Fun times, but you know, physics and biomechanics and all of it, like the world runs and works in a way that like is pretty predictable, you know? Mm-hmm. And so understanding that is so, so super helpful. Which actually is what we're going to talk about today is biomechanics and moving and how to run pain-free, which is so super awesome. And I feel like, I mean, just starting about running myths, there are so many myths about running that have just been repeated enough times that people assume that like, well, this is fact because I read it on the internet. Uh, so what's maybe like one running myth that you're just like, oh my gosh, drives you crazy all the time? It mainly comes from the non-runners and sometimes health professionals and doctors, if they are not running and they say, why are you running? Running is bad for your knees. That is one I hear very often. And knees are the most common joint 
that gets sore and gets injured for runners. And so if they get a sore knee and they go to a doctor and the doctor isn't a runner, they say, why are you running? Running's bad for your knees. You're going to get arthritis or it's just going to continue with this wear and tear pattern until you're unable to run. Don't do it. And so they're highly discouraged and they're in pain already. And they're like, God, maybe I shouldn't. And not only does the research show that's not true, the research actually shows quite the opposite. As long as you're treating it well and training smarter, running is actually very, very good for your knees. Well, and that was one thing I love so much too about your podcast is that you are reading the research and sharing what's coming out of that. And I mean, knees, and I would say probably, you know, many joints in the body just from being a human have some amount of wear and tear that happens. Would you say that like, if there is some amount of, you know, I'm thinking like arthritis specifically with the knees and pain is present, not reversal, but like, is there hope for people? I mean, I know the answer too, but I'm interested in your insight on this. Yeah. And this ties in really well with your podcast episode on arthritis, which I had to listen to yesterday. A lot of people still think that the cartilage on the bones are like similar to a car that would eventually wear out. It has a certain mileage before you either need to replace something or update it or get it serviced. And we think that the cartilage is kind of this finite static structure that has a use-by date. And if you run and every time you impact the ground, that's almost like contributing to that mileage. And eventually, if you're doing marathons, ultra marathons over years and years, that's eventually going to take its toll. It's eventually going to wear down. It's eventually going to start getting sore. The wear and tear is going to be too significant that it's irreparable and needs a replacement. And that's what people are told. That's what people believe. And what the research shows is that actually the ground reaction force from running actually sends vibrations through the body and actually stimulates and triggers cell growth and cartilage growth. And we back that up with prevalent studies around osteoarthritis and the prevalence of osteoarthritis in runners. Mm -hmm. And there is a massive study that I always refer back to, but it has a a sample size of 120,000 people uh, in the US and they look at okay, there's recreational runners, there's sedentary people, and then there's elite runners. And they have a look at all of those different populations and they see what the prevalence of osteoarthritis is in the knees later on in life. And they find that the prevalence of recreational runners to develop hip and knee osteoarthritis is around about 3.5%. Whereas in the sedentary population, it's around 10%. So you're three times more likely to get knee and hip osteoarthritis if you're a sedentary person compared to a runner. The elites are probably around, I think, 11 or 12% osteoarthritis in the hip and knee. So what we come to terms with is there's probably some sort of balance between rejuvenation and like a construction, like ground reaction force wear of the body, but also needs to repair. So this fine balance between right. build up and break down. And the elites in that study were considered if they either represented their country or they got paid to be a runner. So very, very top. And so they're probably working a little bit too much that they're on the other side of the equation of that build up breakdown sort of balance. Um, But the sedentary people are on the other side of that where they're not doing enough build up and sort of almost becoming too weak and not getting enough of that stimulation and enough of that triggered response to stimulate cartilage growth. And so if you think about it and you go back to what runners do, they impact the ground. Same with gym goers, same with people who are regularly active. 
they hit the ground, it sends a ground reaction force through the body and actually triggers some sort of cartilage growth or stimulation. And that's why we see in these prevalent studies of these massive amount of sample sizes, why the prevalence is so low in these active people and so high in these sedentary people that aren't doing that physical activity. Yeah, that's so interesting too, because, you know, it makes sense that, you know, elite runners would have a higher prevalence because just like you're saying, the volume of training they're doing is so high. But for those who are running, you know, even regular you know, training days, you're still not putting in the same amount of, or I hope, you know, distance at someone who's like running marathons multiple times a year and like doing the Olympics and all of that. So for those of you who are even serious runners, you know, more than casual, that there's probably not a whole lot to worry about as long as your mechanics are dialed in, right? Exactly. And even if you are in your 40s, 50s, 60s, and you get scans and they say there's some mild to moderate signs of osteoarthritis, know that that's absolutely normal as well. Mm -hmm. Once you hit your 40s, um, it's perfectly normal for there to be some sort of uh, narrowing of the joint space or some sort of signs of degeneration, even in your back and your knees and your joints. That's just a normal way of life. It doesn't mean that there needs to be pain like you explained on your podcast. And there's even some evidence emerging that if you have osteoarthritis and you have at the moment a painful, say, moderate level of osteoarthritis, you can still run under levels that are manageable and it doesn't worsen. It actually prevents the progression of the pathology if you keep active, if you even keep running and just maintain those pain levels and know what your your level is. Definitely don't overdo it, but right. you can build up, you can build up your strength and build up your running tolerance. And not only does the pathology not progress if you were to say be sedentary, but there's signs that there's no worsening symptoms either. Mm, that is fascinating. So keep moving. And even if you stop moving, start moving again and you'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes you'll find like, particularly with people with osteoarthritis, if there's a flare up, sometimes it's not necessarily the physical activity. Sometimes it can be diet. Sometimes it can be stress. Sometimes it can be emotion that actually stimulates a little bit of a flare up and mm-hmm. produces sensitivity in the body. So it might not necessarily be the actual physical activity, but we do see like a downward spiral if they take on some information by friends or health professionals that aren't well versed in this, where let's say they go for a a 20 minute run and it flares up their knee. They say, oh, I can no longer run 20 minutes. Let me back off. Let me rest for a few weeks and let me just go walking for 20 minutes. And then all of a sudden walking for 20 minutes flares them up and they back off again. They say, let me take a rest and let me only walk for five minutes. And then five minutes flares them up and what you're noticing is over months and months and months, that structure itself becomes weaker and weaker and weaker, and then less able to tolerate these levels of physical activity when what they're doing is just retreating and becoming weaker. When in fact, what we need to do is be proactive and build up their strength and actually build up their capacity. And so that's a very proactive, empowering, liberating way of overcoming, managing osteoarthritis. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, for people to realize as well, like there's so many things you can do that will help you, whether it's running or working out or even just walking, things you can do that aren't that thing, but will help you do that thing better. Of course. Yeah. Cross training, just doing some strength work. We know that if anyone has any level of osteoarthritis, that strength work is key. Like, mm-hmm. yes, the cardio is good, but it has to be accompanied with some level of strength just because we want to preserve all the capacity of the joints, the ligaments, the tendons that all surround that joint. And it just helps 
offload, distribute a lot of that um, that load, and yeah, people just thrive as long as the dosage is correct and as long as it's progressive as well. A lot of people just get stuck to just doing bodyweight exercises. They do mm. bodyweight exercise for months and months and months and don't see that progression that if you were to pack on the weights slowly and monitor your symptoms accordingly. But uh, yeah, if you have that goal in mind to start putting on the weights and start increasing your squats, lunges, that sort of thing, your outcomes are going to be a lot better. Mm-hmm. All the fun stuff. It's my favorite. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. I know we could talk about arthritis and running for hours for sure, but I want to, you know, talk about feet because this is something that applies for runners and non-runners alike and flat feet in particular, because I think that this idea that like, oh, I have flat feet and that's why I have X, Y, and Z pain um, or why I can't run or I can't do this or whatever. So, is it possible to make changes, you know, if you have flat feet and is the only option for change like an arch support or something like that? Yeah, it's a can of worms, this whole topic. Uh, where, <laughs> where do I start? So flat feet can be quite normal for you because the body will adapt to the position or the um, the range of movement that you've grown up doing. It's a very, very common experience for someone to say, go to buy new shoes and the the shoe person have a look at your foot shape and be like, oh, you have flat feet, you need this type of shoe. You have high arches, you need this type of shoe. And they think that you'll find it most comfortable, it will reduce your risk of injury, it will magically align you, it will um, (laughs) help your performance. There's no evidence to show that there's any correlation between the type of shoe you need or the orthotics or like arch support that you need compared to the foot shape that you have. There's just no correlation associated with that. And where all the science that I know about comes with running, um, there's no correlation between the link of injuries between foot shape um, and foot shoe or the shoe type. Um, They've actually done an interesting study where they looked at, I think about 1800 feet or like 900 people. They had a look at all these different foot shapes and they had high arches, they had a neutral foot, a flat foot or an over pronator. There was four different categories and they all put them in a neutral shoe and then just observed them with their normal levels of running over a year and just saw who got injured, who got injured, how quickly. And they actually show that the ones who had pronated feet in a neutral shoe actually got injured less than all the other populations that were there. And Mm. so there's, there's no correlation between what you will thrive in and what magically happens as soon as you put an orthotic under your foot because your body has adapted to the type of foot the type of shoe that you're used used to and the advice that i have for people if they're walking or exercising if they're doing gym in certain types of shoes if they're running in certain types of shoes is just try different types of shoes and whatever you find the most comfortable there's this Ben O'Nig is a researcher that has this comfort theory or preferred method of movement and shows that if you try different shoes and you find a shoe that you find most comfortable, it's only because your natural way of moving is fitted to that particular type of shoe. It doesn't matter on your foot shape. It just matters on how you like to move. And if that Ooh. that shoe itself um, promotes that and you're going to move in your natural, the natural way that you do as an individual in that shoe, then that's when you're going to thrive and you're going to feel more comfortable and you're going to, yeah, just not have this hurdle, not have this um, resistance to a different type of shoe that just feels weird. And 
a lot of these misconceptions that are out there, like the osteoarthritis being the same as like a car that will eventually break down and these orthotics that if you put it under your foot, everything's going to line back up. It all just makes intuitive sense. It kind of just makes, and marketing does a really good job of making sense to have the, mm-hmm. the image of that person who's, you can see the view from the back and they're kind of collapsing their foot and their Achilles is kind of bowed. Right, and then right. the side-by-side comparison of the orthotic being under their foot and everything just magically aligns once again. The research shows that, that, that that just doesn't happen. Like we need to, sometimes orthotics really works for people, but we just don't know why. It's not aligning you. It might just be based on, um, oh, there's a couple of competing theories, but even the podiatrists that are well-versed in the research, even they're saying, we just don't know. It works for some people. We just don't know why. And it only works for some people. It's never for everyone all the time. It's only for some people some of the time. And Mm. there's no baseline characteristic based on pain or their foot shape or how they move or their injury that they have, which will correlate. Yes, you will thrive in orthotics. It's just a, a trial and error. And if you find benefit from it, then it will help you. And in my personal view, I think it's um, of benefit just in the short term and you want to try and wean off them once you're um, yeah. symptom-free uh, because we, I don't like people becoming really reliant on the orthotics, which is probably, if you want to delve into that, we can, unless you have any other questions. Oh, no. I mean, because that was my story too, is it was overtraining in the sense that I was on vacation and walking too much on cobblestones and it totally flared up plantar fasciitis and my knees were hurting and my back was hurting. And I was working in the athletic training room at that time. So we had access to get, you know, custom orthotics made and they took the cast of your foot and all that stuff. And it did help with pain in the short term, which I think is, you know, if you are in pain and a brace or an orthotic or something helps for that time being, a thousand percent use it. But then I also started working on strengthening of my feet and learning to move in a way that let my feet be more supportive. And I don't wear orthotics anymore. In fact, the shoes that I train in are like, you know, super thin. You could twist the whole shoe and it's like, you know, not supportive at all, which goes against what so many people think and are saying about footwear and orthotics specifically. Were you told that you need those orthotics because you have flat feet? I don't remember. It was many years ago. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of people are told that and a lot of people are said that you have flat feet. You're injured because you have flat feet, you'll need orthotics. And therefore, sometimes the orthotics will really work and it um, solidifies the belief that, okay, I have flat feet, I need orthotics and it makes it better. So it confirms that belief. But in fact, like you had that plantar fasciitis because maybe perhaps you just went for a six hour hike or maybe because you were trained for, you decided to train for a marathon in only six weeks or you've gone from (laughs) going, (laughs) yeah, well, there you go. You've gone from um, doing like road running then to go do trail running or you decided to do gym in bare feet instead of like your normal supportive shoes that you're used to. And then they're finally injured. They go in, they say they have flat feet. Well, well, really you've had flat feet your whole entire life and Mm -hmm. it's not the flat feet that has tipped you over the edge to do it. It's the spike in load or the change that you've, that you've come across. And a lot of, when I work with runners, a lot of times when they're injured, the vast majority of times they're injured, it's due to a training error. It's not due to their biomechanics or they're, they're wearing the wrong shoe or they're not doing enough stretching. It's never any of that. It's usually just the, the training errors that they make. 
Mm-hmm. And if to say in your experience, if you were to say, have those orthotics and get those orthotics and use them all the time and feel really, really good. I'm glad that you kind of had that experience to wean off them and then build up strength. But a lot of times the common thing that I see is that yes, then they go to orthotics and they only wear orthotics when they go to the gym or they only wear orthotics when they go for a run just because that's when they need the support. But then over months and months and months, all of a sudden, if they're walking for a couple of hours, if they go out shopping for a couple of hours, then their feet get sore and they're like, oh, maybe I just need my orthotics mm-hmm. when I'm shopping or when I'm on my feet all day. And then months and months and months later, maybe just walking for an hour or standing still for an hour will start to produce foot pain. They're like, oh, maybe I should just put my orthotics in then. Maybe I should just wear my orthotics all the time because I feel a lot better yeah. with my orthotics. And then all of a sudden, anything outside of the orthotics starts to trigger pain and you're like, maybe I should just wear my orthotics. Yeah, I'll never go barefoot again. (laughs) Yeah, it's similar to this um, osteoarthritis example that I had before, but you're constantly just weakening that structure, weakening the capacity for it to tolerate load because that orthotic is offloading you and disabling a lot of the natural kind of movements and the natural function that the foot has. And yes, it does feel great because it's taking on that load and over months and months and months, you get weaker and weaker. And Mm -hmm. in my podcast, I introduced this concept called the pain, rest, weakness, downward spiral. And it literally is this downward spiral because I see some people in my clinic and they can only walk for five minutes. And a year ago, they could walk for five hours. And Mm -hmm. just gradually over time, that capacity has just slowly reduced. And the further down that spiral you are, the harder it is to work back up. And the earlier we catch it and start introducing some load and strengthening and function, it's a lot easier. And so um, that's one warning, not only just for runners, just for athletes in general, or if you're a gym goer, if you're a walker, if you have any sort of little spark in pain or issues, we want to make sure that we don't offload it too long or protect it for too long because mm-hmm. it's only just going to get weaker. Yeah. Well, I think even with, um, cause I've heard from some friends who are, you know, working from home in the last year. And so they're barefoot where they used to be, you know, in an office with shoes all the time and even having foot pain from that. Cause they're just, their feet aren't used to being barefoot all the yeah. time. I see this seasonal like plantar fasciitis from when it transitions all of a sudden starts becoming hot, like the, yeah. the climate and people are used to shoes and then they go home and they put their slippers, moccasins, whatever you call them on. And mm-hmm. they're just constantly in footwear. And then yeah. as soon as it's hot, all of a sudden they're out of footwear. They're in flip-flops, they're in bare feet, they're on the beach walking around in without any shoes on. And all of a sudden they get all this foot pain. And it's just this massive transition from like the demand in the foot has just gone through the roof. And they're just like, what are you doing to me? And doesn't, mm-hmm. it's not that real gradual process that the body likes and the body needs to adapt to. Yeah. So speaking of gradual, like what should somebody start with, whether it's, you know, foot pain or they're trying to transition out of arch supports or they're just working from home and their feet hurt? Yeah. I think the general idea is just to try really conservative, see how symptoms go, use it as like a trial and error. And then if symptoms are fine, then progress. And if we're talking about foot pain specifically, I'm talking with a starting exercise of maybe just single leg balancing and just utilizing the muscles in the foot when you have to balance on one leg and it's just like engaging the foot muscles and you're doing that for um, say 30 seconds to, to 60 seconds and seeing if that's okay. For plantar fasciitis, 
calf raises, like single leg calf raises with your toes extended. So if you have like a rolled up towel underneath your toes in standing and then you come up into a calf raise, what you do is you load that fascia under load and it's almost like a strengthening exercise specifically for that plantar fascia. That has been shown, like the evidence has shown that that really, really helps for the short term and long term as long as your starting dosage doesn't flare up symptoms. So you might start with body weight, you might start with double leg, then you'll progress to single leg, then you'll progress to single leg with weights. And the research shows that in about three months time, if you progress to doing about four sets of eight reps, and that's an eight rep max. So you're holding onto all this weight and you can just push out seven reps and then you're getting to that eighth rep and that's really tough and you can hardly do a ninth. That's what we call your eight rep max. And that's how heavy the weights need to eventually progress to over the months. But that's what the evidence shows is um, really beneficial for short-term and long-term outcomes for plantar fasciitis. Mm, I don't even know if I can do that. <laughs> and I talk to people with plantar fasciitis and I'm like, they're like, I've tried everything. Nothing's worked. And I say, okay, what have you tried? They're like, I've tried orthotics. I've tried the massage ball. I've tried the water bottle uh, with ice in it. Mm. I've tried, I've tried massage. I've tried dry needling. I've tried shockwave. I've tried every, and they just list 10 things and they haven't tried strengthening. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. or they've tried body weight calf raises and that's all they've like that's all they've progressed to and they just haven't tried this really progressive but quite hard loading and it's that's what all the evidence shows and it's um unfortunate that if they try looking for answers they try googling and they try putting onto facebook groups they try looking for the answers they can't find it well yeah because mainstream is like oh just do more icing and more calf stretching and you'll be fine of course (laughs) and stretching can help like I think the the research does show that stretching and sometimes night splints can be effective for really irritable plantar fascia, but it's only for the short term. It doesn't really seem to have too much long-term outcomes. So perhaps the combination of the two of the stretching and the strengthening can have like short-term and long-term benefits. So I always tell people if they want to try stretching because it only benefits some people, then try it. If it doesn't do anything, then let's scrap it and just keep doing strengthening. But you can't just do stretching. And if we know anything from the body adapting and the body getting stronger and increasing load tolerance, stretching just won't do it, will it? It'll only just Mm -hmm. perhaps alleviate symptoms, but just won't build up any sort of capacity. Right, right. And even with, you know, with most things, especially plantar fasciitis, if that you know, tissue isn't able to even take your body weight and gravity, stretching your calves all day long. It's not, that's not going to change. It's not related, you know? Of course. Yeah. I love though, that you are also a fan of strengthening because when I tell people like, okay, stretching is nice, but you really need to be working on strengthening. It is sort of this like paradigm shift because everything, I mean, even for runners too, it's like, oh, you have hip pain or, oh, your hamstrings are tight. Well, just do some yoga, just do some stretching. And while there is a place for that, having that balance of strengthening and stretching all together, I think is so important for just the human body. It's an uphill battle for me trying to convince runners to start strength training because runners just want to run and it's it's the only thing they want to do. And eventually, if I convince them to start doing some strength training, then they go to do bodyweight exercises and that's all they want to do. And I'm like, no, you can't do the bodyweight exercises. It's like you need to start training your body to lift heavy things and that's where we need to go. That's the place we need to be. And mm-hmm. 
Yes. Uh, well, we can dive into a couple of things here. We can dive into stretching and how effective stretching actually is. And we can dive into strength training or what sort of strength training we need to do. So um, we're at a crossroads. Where should we go? I know. For starting your strengthening program, um, what about frequency? Like how often should whoever's listening want to start today? Like how, how often should they be doing? I would say three times a week would be a really nice starting dosage. Um, mm-hmm. As long as you start at a very um, conservative strength. Like I always say to push for heavy stuff, but if you've never done strength work in the past, you're going to start with body weight, really light stuff, really easy stuff, and just see how your body goes. Because the last thing we want to do is get an injury because of strength training. Like it's a big enough hurdle to convince someone to do it. The last thing we need is an injury. And so depending on the individual, depending on their baseline strength, depending on their experience in the gym, then you can just start with some body weight things. You can start with a dosage around three sets of 10 to 15, depending on the exercise, and then just go from there. But if you are a runner, if you are doing any other, like if you're a cyclist or a swimmer or some other athlete that wants to do a whole bunch of cardio within their week, strength training can be done twice a week to improve and build up their strength. And then if they're getting, say, close to race day or close to prioritizing something else, then you can back off that strength training to once a week in order to preserve what you've built up. You can't get stronger doing things once a week, but you can preserve what you've maintained or what you've built up doing it once a week. And so, yeah, if you're training for a marathon, start three times a week if you want. Once you get to the heavier stuff, you can do twice a week. And then once you get closer to marathon race day, then you can back off to once a week. And then that's a pretty generic kind of dosage, you could say. Yeah, and that's a great place to start too. And I think the whole process of whether it's this or any type of movement program, it I feel like is to get to know your body better, right? And to be able to listen to those cues and really figure out um, like, oh, like was my training just like trash today? Or is it because I had really poor sleep? Like, let me make those adjustments rather than just like, you know, do this plan because it like a robot, like I have to do it because it's what it's Thursday and this is what I need to do. You know? Mm. So I think, yeah, yeah, giving people those tools to just trust yourself and you only get that through action and doing it, you know? Yeah, exactly. Give them a bit of like freedom to change their plans around a little bit as well. Um, And even variety, variety is very good for the body. The you'll just adapt and become more resilient if you change things up and just like keep the body guessing as long as you don't overdo things because we don't want spikes in load, but definitely variety. There's something to be said for building resiliency. Yeah. Okay. I do want your expert research backed opinion on muscle confusion. You'll know my opinion on it right away. The nonsense marketing that some workout training programs use, like you do a different workout every single day because we're using the principles of muscle confusion to keep your body guessing. And that's how you get stronger. So can you give me like variety, but without like not muscle confusion, which is nonsense? (laughs) Uh, Well, yeah, I guess it's um, because you want your body to adapt to the environment that you put it through. And if you give it too much variety, it's going to be very confused what to adapt to. There's like, just say, for example, there's, um, if you do a run and do a strength session within six hours, the body is going to have this crossroads of not showing what it's going to adapt to. And so you're not going to get the advantages of adapting to one or the other. So the research suggests that if you want to be a strong runner and you want the benefits, the cardio benefits of running, and you want the strength benefits of strength training, that you need to separate it like 
eight hours apart. And mm-hmm. uh, then the body says, oh, okay, I need to adapt to cardio. Oh yeah, I need to adapt to strength training. If you are doing way too many things, the body's just going to get way too confused anyway. And it's not going, it's going to be like, well, what do you want me to do? What sort of body do you want me to become? What do you <laughs> want me to adapt to? I'm not too sure. Do you want me to be a swimmer? Do you want me to be a cyclist? I'm not too sure. So I guess there, there'd be too much, there can be too much confusion regarding that. However, if there's very similar movements in that variety, if you're doing say different variations of squats mm-hmm. every single day, then there's some sort of common denominator there that the body can be like, oh, I'm recognizing this. Okay. So let me, you want me to do squats. Sometimes they're a little bit different, but that's what you want me to do. So I guess that's where it becomes a bit of an art as well as a science. There's, mm-hmm. and sometimes people just like variety, but if people prefer that and they're going to adhere to exercise more, if there is variety, then it can't be a bad thing. But um, yeah, there's there's that interwoven art science mixture that yeah we can't stray from either or. But there's something to be said for that. Yeah, <laughs> do enough, but not too much, and just a little bit different. But yeah. I totally agree too with the um, you know taking those basics. And it's like variety on that theme, you know, whether it's squats or, you know, hip hinging and deadlifting or um, even just, you know, taking things overhead and being able to do that without your lower back going along for the ride. So for sure, like master the foundations, master the basics first, and then you get to play. But before you start playing, like make sure you have that down first. And then that's how you set yourself up to keep getting strong. I remember I, um, I started CrossFit. Uh, I did it for maybe about six months just to give it a try. And oh, actually, no, it was about 12 months. And every single day they did something different. <laughs> but I only went twice a week and because mm-hmm. I knew that strength training twice a week, that's what you do. And every single day, like if I went in on a Tuesday, okay, today this is the major movement. And then I went on the Thursday, okay, this is the major movement. But then on the Tuesday, back again, it was like, okay, this is the new movement. So we're doing squats and then we're doing lunges. And then the next day, uh, the next week, it'd be like, oh, we're working, we're focusing on your arms. And then it came back to say deadlifts. It'd be like, it's been about three months and I haven't done a second round of deadlifts yet. And like, you expect me to progress. You expect me to get like, yeah. I understand a lot of the people that were in the gym were doing it five times a week, but for my individual like needs, I guess I just wasn't going to receive those benefits because I just never had that repetition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, a similar experience for me because I'm only dropping in twice a week and missing the other days. And I'm like, I mean, I have other things to do that don't require working out every single day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, let's circle back to stretching too, because I know that you had more you wanted to share on that. And I definitely want to hear it. Um, like why it's not, why not stretching, but like, why isn't stretching the fix that we would like it to be? Yeah. And the thing that only gets me mad about stretching is when people think that they are like, cause I work a lot with runners, the runners always injured and there's a type of runner that's always injury prone and they believe that they do get injured because they don't stretch enough. Mm-hmm. And that belief is like built into their mind, but they don't want to stretch because they don't like stretching. So they're not going to do it, but <laughs> yeah. they think that they're constantly getting injured because they don't stretch enough. And mm-hmm. so why that gets me angry is because there is some, the evidence shows that you don't get, it doesn't reduce your risk of injury stretching. So there's something else in that runner's program, whether it be they're doing something wrong, whether they're 
doing too much and they don't know whether they're under recovering, their sleep nutrition might be affected. There's something there that's causing them to be injured, but they're not addressing it because they believe that stretching is going to, uh, mm-hmm. because they're not stretching. And yes, every time I, I see on Facebook groups or people reach out to me, yeah, I'm injured. Yeah, it's probably because I don't stretch enough. <laughs> and the evidence shows that's totally untrue. Like it's, static stretching doesn't do anything to reduce your risk of injury, doesn't do mm. much to increase your running performance. I know you don't have like exclusively runners on here. So if an athlete is doing something end of range, like if you're a swimmer with your shoulders or if you're a gymnast or if you're like doing things to the end of range, yes, stretching would be extremely beneficial and extremely functional for them. But when I'm talking about runners, we don't go through a large range of movement. We just don't. So performance wise, those sort of athletes that work themselves through range to end of range movement, yes, you're going to have to do a different type of warm up. You're going to have to maybe do some dynamic stretches, maybe some static stretches if you're a dancer, gymnast, something like that. But the research shows for runners that static stretching beforehand doesn't increase your running performance. It doesn't reduce your risk of injury. And then afterwards, once you've done your workout and you have this like muscle soreness the next day, stretching doesn't do anything to help the recovery. It doesn't like shorten your muscle soreness experience. And like, just say if I go to the gym and I do chest press and I get like sore pecs the next day and they're sore for like two days, I stretch all the time just because it feels good in the moment, but I know it doesn't help anything for my recovery. My recovery is going to be exactly the same time. But so there's something to be said for that. However, I don't say don't stretch because I think stretching has its benefits. It definitely has its psychological benefits and it definitely has benefits for an individual. And so what I recommend is that you test out your own stretching habits and your own stretching regimes and try a few different things and see if it works for you. And so like when I was doing CrossFit, I knew that I had to stretch my shoulders for five minutes before actually doing cleans or like bar work because my shoulder would get sore if I didn't. And Mm -hmm. that was just through trial and error. But if I wake up in the morning, I get out of bed, I feel a little bit stiff. I've found what works for me is about 10 seconds of stretching for each muscle group. And then I'm feeling quite good and I head out the door. If I'm doing my weekend long run, I just start with a short jog and then I go into a faster jog and then I go into a faster run and then slowly ease my way into it. That's my warm up. If I'm doing something that's quite fast, if I do like interval training or hill sprints or something, I'll focus more on range of movement of my hips. And I'll focus on more like warming up the muscles, preparing the muscles for what they're about to do. So maybe some bounding dynamic kind of warm-ups. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that sort of stretching, opening up my hips, that's just what I found has worked well for me. And I'm not convincing myself otherwise of what <laughs> the magic that it might actually be doing. I know that's not reducing my risk of injury. And I know if I am injured, it's not because I'm not stretching. It's because of something that I've done, whether overtraining or under recovering. So that's my position on the evidence and the my opinions around stretching. And do you agree? Do you disagree? Do you have any thoughts? Yeah, no, I'm totally on board with you as well. Cause like I like I have like a set warm-up sequence that I use before I work out that's mostly dynamic movements like you're talking about too, of you know, hip circles and you know, shoulder flossing is what I call it, but just taking a you know a band overhead and doing all of that. But 
it's also based on just like how I feel sort of like you're saying too, it's that, that gradual progression and just paying attention to how your body feels in that moment. Because the days where I just like go out there and I'm like, okay, ready to go. And I just start working out like, that's also fine. But I think that the reason why is also because in the rest of our time, both you and I, like we're not just sitting around, like even as we're recording, both of us are standing at our desks. So I think that yes, warm up and stretching is cool, but like it by itself isn't one fix. It's not going to you know, prevent you from getting injured. It's not going to fix your knee pain and back pain and all of that. It's one piece of a whole pie that includes moving more all the time. Yeah. On my podcast throughout December, I did this recovery month where I did some solo episodes, delved into some evidence, but then also interviewed some like re- really world-class researchers on recovery, recovery strategies. And it's kind of warmed me up to the benefits of foam rolling, massage balls, stretching, because I once said, okay, foam rolling doesn't do anything. Massage balls doesn't release anything. You're not doing much. It's all a fad. It's all marketing ploys. I used to like have a huge (laughs) rant about it. But if an athlete is constantly exercising throughout the day and constantly trying to strive for performance and they're constantly wound up a bit tense, they're not sleeping too well and they are like just wound up, really wound up, worked up, maybe stretching for them, maybe going to a yoga session, maybe doing some foam rolling or some massage balls. Is there time to kind of switch off and unwind both physically and mentally? Mm -hmm. And we do know that first of all, sleep is the number one recovery tool that you have. It is so, so powerful. However, sometimes people don't get a lot of sleep. Sometimes it's hard for people to sleep. Sometimes they have other commitments and sometimes maybe just getting down unwinding, doing some stretching for half an hour, attending a 60 minute yoga class where they're just like relaxed can be really, really powerful for recovery. And so if you're that type of person, that's really wound up, really stressed, like constantly going, going to work, looking after family, doing some more exercise and that sort of thing, maybe then stretching, paying attention to your body, listening to your body, doing some foam rolling, doing some stretching, really just paying attention to your body that can have real true benefits. So I've kind of warmed up to the the benefits of doing it and still get a bit wound up about people think they're releasing their ITB or they think they're doing that sort of stuff. But um, yeah, I, I don't disregard it anymore. I've warmed up to it. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. When you're saying too, that your shoulders were sore, I'm like, you need some therapy balls up there in your yeah, Exactly. And yeah. <laughs> and I used to do that. I was doing massage balls through my shoulders, like before those, those CrossFit workouts. And I'm like, Oh, is it like, am I releasing? Probably not, but it feels better. And I was like doing those stretches. I still do all of it because I knew once I did it, I felt better. And so mm-hmm. placebo is a p- powerful thing as well. And as long as you feel better after doing it, then continue doing it. Yeah. And I think, you know, what you touched upon too, is just the nervous system element of it. And if there's anything that you can do to help your nervous system unwind and that tension and discomfort, whether it is from something physical or just like your body is under so much stress, like that in itself is beneficial too. Yeah. There's this, it's almost like if you want to simplistically think about these like two modes that the athlete is in, it's in like this sympathetic, like exercise, stress, fight or flight kind of thing. And they're constantly exercising and they're constantly like got deadlines at work and they're buzzing when they're trying to go to bed. And then you have this other mode that the body switches into, which is this parasympathetic, which is Mm -hmm. you need to unwind in order for your body to start recovering. It needs to process the stress that you've put it through. It needs to calculate and just alleviate during that time of rest. Whereas if someone's constantly switched on, they can't recover 
And when you actually get stronger, you don't get stronger lifting the heavy stuff. You get stronger after lifting the heavy stuff when you've switched into this uh, recovery mode or this parasympathetic mode. And sometimes just a lot of people get these overuse injuries because they just can't switch into that recovery mm-hmm. mode. And I just talked to um, this guy, Sean McCormick, which will be on my podcast next week, and he has float tank centers. And it was yeah. talking about the, the float tank stuff. And people, if they're not sleeping well and they're constantly stressed, what better way than to float in a tank where you don't have your phones, you don't have any sensory information coming in at all, and you can just sit there and be and pay attention to your body and just that's another way to switch off from a cover, which um, would be a very interesting topic when it eventually comes out. Yeah. Yeah. No forced relaxation. That was one of my favorite things that I did on a regular basis. I'm like, oh, you can't use your phone. It's in the other room. And (laughs) I missed it now. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So tell us more about your podcast because there's, I mean, I'm going to go back and add all of those into my queue. They all sound fascinating. Sure. So my podcast is called the Run Smarter Podcast. And yes, it is tailored for runners. And the idea is to try and bring evidence-based practice dulled down into like a level that everyone can understand, very similar to your podcast, but is trying to give runners a bit of clarity and a bit of control once they are injured or things they can do to reduce their risk of injury. And if they are suffering from like little symptoms here and there, exactly what they can do in order to make sure it doesn't turn into a six-month injury, it only is a six-day injury, and in order to finally overcome it. And so I do solo episodes, I do interviews, I sometimes do some episodes where I go through like an article, like a paper, but a lot of the time it's just debunking a lot of these misconceptions, a lot that we've covered today. And yeah, it just helps a runner survive and thrive. And if someone wants to check out the podcast, they can search the Run Smarter podcast, check out the first 10 episodes, which are the 10 universal principles to reduce or prevent any future injury. Mm. And then just scroll through your feed, find a topic that resonates with you or you want to learn more about and yeah, start having a listen. Yeah. Your podcast is super fascinating. And I so appreciate your dedication to reading the research. And I know that when I have more myths to debunk, I'm like, Brody, I need your help. Please come back. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the feeling's mutual as well, because you do exactly the same. It's the exact same podcast, just tailored to like a slightly (laughs) different demographic. So the feeling is mutual. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And I hope that everyone goes and checks out the Run Smarter podcast. I'm definitely going to look for that float episode because that has been, I still haven't, have you tried it? I've tried it once. Yeah, it was good. (laughs) I want to, it was like, I was so close to doing it. And then the pandemic shut everything down, but soon, 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 soon. Well, thanks again for being here today. Thank you very much. I don't know about you, but after listening to Brody talk, I feel so much more confident to get back out there running, knowing that I can do so in a way that's going to keep my body injury free. Like, let's just let's all go for a run. All right. But I would love to hear what your favorite part was of today's episode. And I know Brody would love to hear it, too. So you can tag me on Instagram. I'm at Hala You can also tag Brody. He's at Run Smarter Series. And let us know what your favorite thing about the conversation today was. Did you learn something new? Did it help to validate something that you maybe have been feeling in your body? Just 
take a screenshot and tag us over on Instagram. And if you have any questions or you want to keep discussing today's episode, again, send me a message at Hala for Mala, or you can call the Body Nerd Hotline at 818-396-6501. And don't forget that show notes, fun links, free downloads, the Body Nerds group, and everything else lives over at aewellness.com slash podcast. And as always, thank you for taking the time to listen today. I know you have tons of choices and tons of things you could be doing. So it really means a lot that you're taking the time to tune in and hopefully get your body moving. And if you enjoyed this week's episode, it would mean the world to me if you shared it with someone else who needs to know this. Maybe your running buddy or your workout friend or your best friend or just, you know, someone you know at the gym. I don't care. Just share it. And here's asking better questions, moving more, running pain-free, and getting nerdy. And thank you for helping me spread the word that your body is super cool and that you, my friend, can change the unchangeable. I'll talk to you next week. Pain stops you in your tracks, and body work is one of the fastest and most effective ways to deal with it. I've put together a free PDF with the six places you need to roll right now for quick relief. Plus, the reason why what you've tried so far has only given you a temporary fix. So whether it's back pain, plantar fasciitis, neck tension, shoulder pain, or tight hips, I've got you covered. And when you download it now, I'll also send you some video demos to get you started even faster. Head on over to aewellness.com slash bodywork, that's B-O-D-Y-W-O-R-K, to get started today.